Our scripture reading today is Romans 13, Romans 13, 8 through 14. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of the darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. All right, so yeah, we're in Romans 13. Romans 13, we're slowly making our way through that book. How's everybody doing today? Y'all good? Good. All right, I'm excited to get into the the scripture here. Um, You know, what's interesting is a lot of times the metaphor that the scripture uses for the world is a metaphor of of darkness or a metaphor of light. Does anyone at times feel like the world is dark? Anybody feel that? Yeah? Okay, I'm not the only one. Okay, sometimes the world feels, uh, feels pretty dark. And so the question that this text is asking our, uh, of us is, in a world of darkness, how should Christians conduct themselves? In a world of darkness, how should Christians conduct themselves? And the answer is, we put on Christ and fight the flesh. Now, here's what's interesting about that answer. It's not that the world is dark, so we just go, you know, trying to hate the world. It's not that the world is dark so that we go try to tell other people what should be done. But the world is dark, so we put on Christ. The world, the world is dark, so we fight the flesh. Uh, let's, let's ask God for help. Father, I'm asking that, that by the power of the Spirit, you would speak your word to your people. Lord, we need to see Christ in the text. We need to see his love, his command, his mercy. Father, I'm asking that not only would you give us understanding, but by the same spirit, would you give us obedience? That's not, not something that we can work in of our, ourselves, but, but we need your power. And so, Lord, would you meet us today in this text? Would you meet us in the preaching of the word? And I thank you for your promises to do that in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're looking at, at verse 8. <clears throat> It says, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. It's saying that Christians owe love. Now, I don't know about you. When somebody comes up to me and says, you owe something, I feel a little offended. What you mean I owe something? Like, you better earn it. You know, you nice to me. You know what I'm saying? Like the thought that we owe love to those around, it, around us offends our sensibilities. Should they not earn it? 
Should they not do something like really nice or should they not be a, a quality good person or, or, or not just love any old person? Some people frustrate me. No, no, listen, they don't even say love people if you feel like it. They say love if you're feeling like you're having a good day. And it says actually you owe something. Like you're in debt and the way to get out of the debt is that you would love other people. See, this, this offends our sensibilities, but the Christians take their cues from Christ. And Christ gave us his life. Listen, Christ didn't owe nobody nothing. Yeah? Christ, though he owed us nothing, he gave up his life for us. Though if there was anything owed to us, it was judgment. If there was anything owed to us, it was correction. But Christ, when he looks at us, those unworthy of, of love, those unworthy of a statement of, of, of innocence, he says, I am going to lay down all that I have. I'm going to lay down the, the riches of heaven, and I'm going to demonstrate my love to them. Now, here's the deal. Though Christ owed us nothing because of what he did, the scriptures say that we owe him something. First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you are not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. The, the Christ, Christ didn't owe us anything because of what he has done. We owe him our lives. But that gets back to, to Romans uh, 12, 1, which we dealt with a couple weeks ago. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So it's like in view of all the stuff from Romans 1 to 11 that talks about your sin, yet the provision of God through Christ to give you forgiveness, to change you and give you an eternal inheritance. Because of that, in view of that, you live your life as an eternal sacrifice to him. Now, here's the interesting thing. It says that, that we owe God our lives. We owe God our body. Think about this. Though we owe God everything, he does not need anything. Yeah? Though we owe God everything, he actually, he, he himself doesn't need anything. Psalm, chapter, Psalm 50 and verse 12, it says, this is God speaking. If I were hungry, I, would, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. In other words, he is self-sufficient. What can you give him that he does not have? Nothing. So, so how in the world do, do we give back to the one who owes, who, who we owe, yet he doesn't need anything? Listen to this. This is like one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther. It says, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So the, though you can't, you can't give something to him, which he does not have, but when we say we owe him our life, that is expressed through loving one another. Yeah, so we can't, get, he, what is he, well, he don't need anything from us, but he loves his creation, he loves his people. So when the text says you owe him, the way that you show that you owe him is by the way you love other people. By the way that you love those whom you might not like or who frustrate you. Because again, we get our cues from Christ, right? He showed his love for us. Romans 5 says that while we were still sinners, he died for us. So to imitate him, 
to, to, to pay him back, if you will. It means that we love others, even though they're sinners, even though they're frustrating, even though they get on, get on our nerves sometimes. So, so th- what's interesting is, listen, though God does not any, need anything, <clears throat> he cares for his creation, and he wants us to care for it too. Now, what I love is uh, he, he, he says in, in verse 9 and 10, he outlines <clears throat> what love looks like. Because you can be like, we all have kind of separate, different definitions of love. The world has, you know, competing definitions of love. But loving one another looks like fulfilling the law. <laughs> Look at verse 9. Nine. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So he's not leaving it up to how you, like, what do you think love, and he's not, like, it's not, you don't make up what love looks like. He's saying you look to the law, you look to the text of the scripture so that you can have a definition of what that love looks like. And this teaching, <clears throat> it comes from Christ. Matthew 22, 37 through 40, he said to him, this is, this is Jesus, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourselves. Get this. this. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. And so he, he just reveals like what, like sometimes when, when we, we, we kind of brush up against the law, because we're in the wrong, we kind of get frustrated at the law. We get frustrated at God's commands because in our hearts, sometimes we don't want to do those commands. But Jesus is telling us, hey, the law is for our good. God's commands are for our good. Jesus shows the end goal of the law. So the law is not arbitrary. The law is not like, well, God felt like we should act like this for no particular reason. No, he loves us. And and the fulfillment of that love is, is us walking in obedience to the law. It's not arbitrary, but it's for our good. Not only that, the law defines what right and wrong is. When the text says, do no wrong to your neighbor, depending on who you ask, that could look various ways, right? Well, they, they consented, it's cool. What, what does do no wrong mean? It, it defines what do no wrong to the neighbor means. See, sin is the redefinition of what is good, okay? So go all the way back, Genesis 3. God says, you can eat any, uh, from any fruit of the garden, but do not eat a fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan goes, well, it looks good, though. It's, it's a redefinition of what's good. <laughs> so in our hearts, we are always tempted to redefine what is good and what is evil. And we need to understand something. Everyone's consent is not the definition of good. Okay? <laughs> Everyone can consent to do what's wrong, Yeah? You can have a big old group of people and they all agree. That doesn't mean it's right. So it, it can't just be that, well, I, he, didn't, he didn't think it was wrong and I didn't think it was wrong, so it's whatever. No. No, because that's arbitrary. That's shifting. You can't base your ethics on that. Your ethics will change all the time. But we have to base what we do on the law of God because it is fixed. In verse 11, we get this, this command to, to live in the light. To live in the light. Look at verse 11. It says, besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. 
because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believe. The night is over and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. See, this, this metaphor that Apostle Paul is using, he's, he's basically saying the world doesn't think that God actually sees them. Because, you know, if you do something at night, you're just kind of hidden. That's why people do dirt at night, right? You people don't really like, nobody's like in the broad daylight doing weird stuff. They wait till it's night. <laughs> then they look around. Is anybody looking? I don't think so. So I'm going to do the thing. What it's saying is that, that the world thinks that God is asleep. The world thinks that God doesn't see. The world thinks that God will not hold to account. We don't think that we'll have to give an account of our actions. So we're in the darkness and we do what we want. But Christ wakes us up to get us ready for the day of judgment. See, what the world doesn't know is, is God has night vision. Okay? Nothing is hidden. There's no part of your heart. There's no action. There's no memory. Nothing is hidden from him. Hebrews 4.13, it says, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There is no secret that you have that God does not know. And Christ wakes us up to this reality. He shines his, his, his life, his light on our hearts and on our actions. That there is a day when he will judge all of the actions of all people. If you have any desire for justice, that is a good thing. Nobody gets away with nothing because he sees everything. And that day will expose everyone's actions. Luke 8, 17, it says, For nothing is concealed that won't be revealed. Nothing hidden that won't be made known and brought to light. What he's saying there is an accurate record of all that is done in secret. The secrets that might have gone to deathbeds will be exposed on that day. So what he's saying is, listen, if you, if you and me know from what Christ has taught us, that there is going to be a day when everything is brought to light, he says, then put away the deeds of darkness because it's going to be mighty awkward for you on that day. <laughs> right? Didn't nobody know? Yeah, he did. And not everybody know. That's what it is. Okay. So, so let's put away the deeds of darkness. He says this carousing and this, this drunkenness. Listen, in our culture, I, I feel like we have this, 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 we want to numb ourselves. We have this pain and we want to numb ourselves. And, 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 and with this carouse and the party and the drunkenness, it reveals a heart that wants to numb and forget, which instead we should look to God for forgiveness and peace. We have this, this culture of, of sexual impurity and promiscuity. That this reveals a heart that just wants to indulge in pleasure and doesn't look at consequences. But why not instead look to God and his promise of present and future happiness? We live in a culture of quarreling, do we not? Of fighting. Listen, this, this points to a heart that wants to dominate, but why not instead look to the one who judges all to fight your battles? 
Listen, these are tools that we're using to cope with the reality of a sinful world. But we can go to Christ and have better tools and more lasting peace to cope with all the frustrations and the complexities of this life. He says, instead of these deeds of darkness that that you're trying to to use to navigate this dark and, and fickle world, why don't you put on the armor of light? That armor of light, that will protect you on the day of judgment. There won't have to be any embarrassment if you put on the armor of light. And not only that, the armor of light actually answers the deepest yearnings of your heart. What do he say? Like, what does it mean to put on the armor of light? It means believe in the words and works of Jesus. It means that we repent and turn away of attitudes and actions that are against his law. Put on the armor of light. Because we're not going to get it twisted. We, we know that God sees everything. We know that there's a day when all the secrets will be revealed. We know that there's a day when we'll have to give an account and an answer for all the things that we did. Even the things that we did that didn't nobody know about. There will come a day when that will be brought to light. And in verse 14, it says, instead, put on Christ. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. What does it mean to put on Christ? What is that? That's like, what do you mean? How can I put him on? What he's saying is, 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 is we put on Christ by thinking his thoughts. In other words, this means that our minds are molded more by the divine scriptures than by the culture. That we don't make up our thought processes just because of random things that we hear, but, but we get into the biblical text and we say, I want to put on Christ. I want to put on his mindset. I want to put on his attitude. We put on Christ by the imitation of his life. Listen, Christ lived a lifestyle of prayer and communion with God and fellowship with God's people. That's one thing you can just see the common thing. The disciples will wake up, they're like, where's Jesus at? He's praying. Oh, he doing that again? Where he at? He praying. Who he with? His people. Where he, what he doing? He praying. Who he with? His people. I know that seems simplistic, but we put on Christ by living a lifestyle of prayer and of communion with God's people. And here's the deal. That runs counter to what the flesh wants. Our flesh wants Lust, our flesh wants revenge, our our flesh wants material things. But when we follow the thoughts and patterns of Jesus, it it rubs up against aspects of our nature, the aspects that want to do the deeds of darkness. I need to make a comment on that last part. It says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desire. This is how sometimes we treat sin. We're like, oh my goodness, it was an accident. What, how did I find myself in this situation? But if you just thought a little bit and you review the action, you're like, well, what led up to that? He says, make no provision. Like a really, listen, if you have a sin that is besetting you, a sin that you feel like is always, you know, over and over and over again, take some time to think about, well, what, what am I doing that leads up to that? Where am I with? Or where am I at? Who am I with? What am I doing? And what can I cut off so I don't, I don't make any provision? Sometimes we don't need to watch Netflix all the time, okay? Sometimes you need to delete the app off your phone. Make no provision. That means there's some forethought with it, yeah? In other words, he's saying that we have to fight the flesh. 
And the, what the Bible calls the flesh is this fallen human nature, our, our base primal drives for self-gratification that runs up against God's law. There's a lot of things that, that we have to believe by faith in Christianity, but the flesh ain't one of those things, right? We know that. <laughs> Even if you don't follow Jesus, I'm like, do you meet your own standards? No. We all have this propensity to, to not meet our own standards of morality. And he's saying, you have to fight that in a world of darkness, in a world that wants to drive you to feed the flesh. You have to fight it. And the question is, well, how do we fight it? How do we fight this drive in us that is running contrary to the commands of God? We fight the flesh by starving it through the practices and commands laid down by Jesus. In other words, if, if fighting the flesh is a battle, then you have to develop some muscles. Yeah? Like if you're going to fight somebody, you better have it working out a little bit. Now, if you're going to fight the flesh, you, you have to develop these spiritual muscles. And, and the question is, well, how do you develop these spiritual muscles? By following the practices of Jesus. In other words, we need something called spiritual formation. It's this process of becoming more Christ-like. And it is accomplished through learning and the practice of spiritual disciplines. Too often, our view of the Christian life is just completely thought-based. We don't think we got to do anything. As long as we think the right thing, it'll be all right. But the reality is that, that one of the first things that the Christians were called is, is they called the faith, they called it the way. They called it the way. They didn't call it the thing that we know. They called it the way. What they're saying is there is a particular way of life that we live so that we are formed by Christ. If you go to Acts 2 and you looked at the things that they did, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' uh, teaching. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to these practical, tangible things. And beloved, this is what God uses so that you can be strong and fight the flesh. There's actual tangible things. See, the, the pillars of the spiritual disciplines, they're, they're times of prayer and scripture, meaningful fellowship, which includes burden sharing and confession. So many times when I ask people, like, how, like how, are, how is your spiritual life doing? A lot of times, a lot of times, there's, there's no uh, individual pursuit of the Lord in the text of scripture. When I ask people, what's your prayer life look like? They're like, well, I say a couple of prayers when I go to bed. But then if we look at the prayer life of Jesus and the prayer life of the church and that they dedicated themselves to these practices. Beloved, if we want to live a successful life, if we want to, to live a life that, that defeats the flesh, if we want to live a life of light in a world of darkness, we have to put in the work of the spiritual disciplines. We have to put in the work of engaging with scripture every day. We have to put in the work of consistent prayer. We have to put in the work of serving one another. Now what happens is when we hear this, we're like, oh snap, is that against the gospel? What are we gonna do with that? Like, how does that, how, how does that work together? Listen, we don't just fight the flesh through our natural power. We fight the flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
In Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13, it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. If you think about that, that's really confusing. I want you to work hard because God's working, huh? Is it who working? Is it me? Is it God? Who, who's doing the thing? What's happening? What he's saying is we exert energy in following Jesus and God supplies the strength. In a way, it's kind of like driving a car. Like if you sit in a car, you don't put your pedal, like nothing happens, right? You're just sitting there. But you put, you put your foot on the pedal and it starts moving and you can't be like, look how strong I am. You know, like, it's the car, you know, like, like, but you're doing, you are actually doing something, but there is a power that is greater than you that is cooperating with you as you do the thing. That is how spiritual growth happens. You put in actual effort and then this power that is bigger than you actually supplies a strength that is more than you could supply. That's, that's how spiritual growth happens, y'all. And I, so let me, let me just pass you off for a minute. Let me back up a little bit. You will not get all of the spiritual growth that you need from a sermon on Sunday. You won't. You can't. I, I, I wish you could. That'd make my job easier. But listen, you cannot get it just from that. And I'm going to tell you something. A lot of times, we don't understand this. Spiritual growth happens, uh, it's like a wrestle or a struggle. That when you're reading the scripture and you're engaging in prayer, sometimes you'll hit this wall. And you're like, what am I reading? What is this saying? Or you'll hit this wall in prayer like, does he hear me? What do I say now? In those moments, listen, in those moments, you engage other brothers and sisters. Yeah? And you say, listen, I, I'm trying to seek the Lord. I'm trying to do these spiritual disciplines. I'm trying to, I'm trying to grow in the Lord, but I'm, I'm having these, these, these roadblocks, and, and I need help. And listen, in the nitty-gritty of those types of conversations, that's where spiritual growth happens. But I, I don't, I feel like, I feel so pressured when I'm preaching about spiritual growth because I feel like that, that people are expecting me to go over every single detail of how you should grow spiritually. And that's not the function of the sermon. The function is, hey, here's the goal. You have to pray consistently. And you're like, how do I do that? You got, you see all these people right here? Talk to them. <laughs> I have to read God's word consistently. How do you see the, everybody that's here? We have to help one another. And in the nitty-gritty of those relationships, those spiritual disciplines are worked out. Listen, I remember when I was first learning how to pray, and I'm like, I don't know how to do this thing. I, needed, I, I went to some mature people. I was like, can you teach me? Can you show me? Can we pray together? There has to be a drive that, that, that is deep in you that pursues other people so that you can grow spiritually. Why? Because we have to put on Christ, and we have to make no provisions for the flesh. And the Scriptures tell us that we have the power from God to do this. Listen to this promise. This is in 2 Peter 1.4. It says, By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world, because of evil desire. That verse almost sounds like crazy. You can share in the divine nature. What? 
Like you have this, you can have this real power of God at work in you. What he's saying, he says, by these great promises, you can share in the divine nature. Let me, let me, let me make it plain. There are times when, when we're talking about uh, Christ, we're talking about sin, and, and, and our own sins overwhelm us, right? We feel this guilt and this shame. But then we hear this promise that Christ took our guilt and shame on the cross, and it does something special in us. We understand his forgiveness, but it's not just an intellectual forgiveness. We feel his forgiveness deep in the inward parts, and we begin to, to share in that love that he has for us, that as I cling to the promises of God, it's not just an intellectual exchange, but there is Holy Spirit power in them. That as I engage the promises of God for forgiveness, as I engage the promises of God for my justification, I have this power from the Spirit to believe these things. We believe in the promises of the power through the gospel. Look, Christ rose from the grave with all power and authority. In Ephesians 1, he does, he's, Paul is praying this, this beautiful prayer. Like he's, he's risen from the dead. He's far above uh, every name, every principality, everything under his feet. And then he goes, and that same power works in you. So when you're faced with trying to defeat sin, and you're like, I ain't got the power to do that. The promise for the scripture is, yeah, that's true, but Christ lives in you. And the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is alive in you through the Holy Spirit. That power works in us. So a lot of times when we are engaging the scripture and engaging prayers, what we're really doing is is wrestling with the promises of God found in there. And as we're wrestling with the promises of God found in there, the Spirit of God releases power in our hearts and lives so that we can put on Christ, so that we can make no provision for the flesh. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you have given us warnings and promises in the scripture. Lord God, that that you promise to work in us as we seek to follow the way of Jesus. Lord God, that, that, that we would, would, would seek to, to, to be with you and yearn and hunger for righteousness, as it says in the scriptures. And it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. And so, Lord, I pray that we will be a congregation that pursues after holiness, that pursues after spiritual disciplines, not as a means to check off boxes, but so that we could participate in the life of God, that we can experience what is written about you in the text. Lord, help us to say no to sin and yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen.